Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. A good day to you, Bobo. How are you doing? No complaints. How are you, Cliff? Uh, Ups and downs. I'm doing better now, man. I'm at the tail end of COVID. I think everybody and their mother is getting it. And uh, yeah, at the tail end now, I feel pretty good. I feel like I have just an ever so slight cold. Um, But, you know, just kind of waiting for things to pass by me. Yeah, I had had a real low fever, just like a half degree to a degree higher than normal. Mm -hmm. But I I just didn't think it was COVID because like, I wasn't coughing. I didn't have any respiratory issues. I walked it off. You walked it off. Uh, Rub some dirt on it, and that's about it. <laughs> you know, I saw that. I went to the CDC website to get some advice, and it said rub some dirt on it. <laughs> <laughs> right on. It, it absolutely did not, by the way. So, <laughs> but nonetheless, yeah, I'm pretty much through it. I'm just kind of waiting for the last few days of uh, just being extra safe, staying out twice as long as I need to. I got great guys, uh, great employees and stuff. So I'm just kind of staying away from the shop right now for a few more days. And when I know completely confident that I'm good and ready to go back, then I will. So, Right on. Yeah, you know, I was looking at our listenership. We've, we've picked up a ton of new listeners in the last month, like like a huge spike. And I was looking and we got 168 people listening in Ukraine. I want to give those guys a shout out. We're with you. We're pulling for you. I've been donating when I can. Yeah, keep up the good fight, you guys. Absolutely. I had no idea we had any listenership in Ukraine. That is fantastic. So thank you for listening, and we we are behind you, man. What do you got lined up for today? Today, you are going to be stoked. I'm stoked. Um, We've talked about having this guest on for a very long time, and we finally pulled the right strings, and it happened. Um, And and I'm so pleased. This this guy is one of the best Bigfooters alive today. Period. Um, he he is uh, one of the main forces behind a, um, one of the only truly scientific groups out of there in the field. He is a great field researcher, um, and he is funny as all get out. Love this guy. He's this is one of the guys that neither of us see enough. You know, him, I know him. Uh, so Daryl Collier, welcome to Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and the Bobes. Oh man, it's such an honor to be here. Uh, very happy that uh, y'all asked me to be on the show, and uh, just uh, <laughs> I listen to your show all the time, and uh, appreciate your kind words, Cliff. I, I I remember when you and I went in the field back in two thousand eight in uh, Skookum. You, you impressed the heck out of me because we we um, the, the team needed somebody to go down in the valley, um, and you and you just you just volunteered, stepped forward and said, "Here am I, send me." And you went down there and you stayed the night by yourself, and we were all. 
we were all pretty impressed with that. <laughs> uh, well, if I impress you, you must have been a very impressionable age in your life. Yeah, because I'm j- just bigfooting, you know? That's great. <laughs> yeah. So for our listeners who may not know, uh, Daryl Collier, of course, is one of the head honchos. Everybody wants to be a honcho um, in the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. Um, we've had several of their members on before, and uh, and so we brought Daryl on to talk about some of the stuff that that group is doing and some of the observations of Sasquatches he has personally had down at Area X and maybe somewhere else. I don't know. And just, frankly, to catch up with Daryl for a while. So Yeah. Hey, Daryl. How's it going? This is Bobo. It's going well, Bobo. Good to be on the show with you. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks, man. Thanks. We really appreciate you being here because uh, we're big fans of yours. Oh, the feeling's mutual. The feeling's mutual. It's an honor. Thank you. Where should we start then? Well, Daryl, I mean, I haven't seen you in person since 2008 or something like that. You know, I want to point out you've grown. I want to let you know that right away. I can tell by the radio that we're talking on. Um, but I, I keep hearing about you over and over because obviously we're close friends with Matt Pruitt. He's uh, also he's a board member, I believe, of the NAWAC, and he's our uh, editor and producer for this program here. So I hear bits and pieces. How many times have you actually observed a Sasquatch now to date? <laughs> uh, that, that, that's a good question. Uh, you know, uh, unless I go in and look into, um, uh, we, we have a, we have an analysis, uh, website sort of behind the curtain. One of our uh, brilliant guys in the organization designed it. And, and unless I go in there and look, I can't really remember. It's I've had a number, I've had a number of visual encounters and I know that's difficult for, uh, that's difficult for some people to believe, but it just is what it is. Um, we were we were looking the other day, and I, you know, I think in Area X over the last ten years, I probably spent four to five hundred days in that place, days and nights, you know, through through all the various summer operations, then ad hoc teams in the fall and winter, and and that sort of thing. And so, there's no magic pill. It's just that the more the more time you spend in an area where these things are, then obviously, right? I mean, it, the, the odds go up. And so when you, when you calculate the number of hours, that is, you know, 400 days, 450 days, and say you've had six or seven visuals, it's really not, not surprising and it's not that much. And, and when, we say, when I say visuals, I mean average length of maybe two, three seconds. I had one in 2019 with a thermal that was longer than that, but they've all been just a few seconds. I mean, just fleeting uh, visuals. I mean, they were good enough that, so that I could absolutely tell what they were, but you don't get to stand there and, and uh, you know, just make all these visual notes in your head about what you're seeing. It, it's there and it's gone. That's, that's kind of how it is. Uh, that's pretty typical. But no, I, I mean, I've seen... You know, I, I've I've seen two, um, one one right after the other, and that's, I guess that's probably the best one because I was I was hidden behind a log, and I, I got to see him for two or three seconds, or it two or three seconds before, uh, you know, I moved and it saw me move, and then it bolted like sort of like a bolt of lightning. I mean, it was just gone in a flash, and and so I thought, okay, you know, I just blew it with that one, and then right after that one, through the same clearing, a second one just just blasted through, you know, and it was just, it was just a big upright blur. So it was two of them, which I think that kind of makes that one, uh, you know, singularly incredible just because it was, it was two individuals and they were together and saw the one. I never even realized there was a second one there until the first one ran off and then the second one followed it. 
And those were daytime. Yeah, it was daytime. It was about like right now. I mean, it was uh, it was about uh, seven thirty ish, seven forty five, something like that. Uh, maybe a little, maybe seven fifteen, seven twenty. It was uh, September of twenty fourteen. And I'd been sitting out there for about four hours, Bobo, and uh, it's just waiting for that very thing to happen. The problem was they, they stepped out of an area that where I wasn't really – I was sort of facing not opposite uh, from where they stepped out, but it was, a, it was a log, a big log between me and them. And that's why I, I, I'm convinced that's why it stepped out to begin with because it didn't know I was there because I was hidden behind this big log. It may have known I was in the area, I think. But I don't think it knew exactly where I, where I was because I don't think it would have ever stepped out like that. I mean, it, when I when I turned and saw it, but well, the thing was just standing there. I mean, it was just I mean, it was like the size of an eight foot door, just uh, you know three four feet wide at the top, and just standing there, stock still, probably fifty yards away from me. And I, I was just you know I, I was I was in shock. I was like, holy cow! And I turned to face it to kind of get over the log. And when it saw the motion from me, well, then it bolted. That was pretty exciting. <laughs> I'll bet. Can you describe it? Can you describe the creature? Yeah, I mean, it was just, it was a dark color, I, I, you know, darkish brown maybe. Um, and I, I, I couldn't see any features in the face. Um, it was sort of set back in the woods in, the, in a little clearing. And the, the, the biggest thing that I recall about it was that it was just like the shape of a door with a head that came out at the top. And that's, you know, that's a, that's about all I can tell you, except it was just like a dark brown and it was just standing there squarely facing me. I could see, like I said, it, it was, it was vaguely shaped like a big door with like a, you know, a rounded, like a head up at the top. And, and, and then it just bolted. And that's about the best description I can give you of that. Since you've seen them a number of times, um, looking at, at, the, at the various sightings you've had, no matter how brief or even close, close approaches, maybe where you didn't visually see one, but you knew there was one right there, um, is there a pattern um, either in time of day or um, the type of habitat or your activity or, or anything like that, any sort of pattern that you've noticed over, over the time here to, uh, with all your sightings and encounters? Well, I would say that uh, most of, I'm trying to think back here, mo- most of the sightings that I've had, I was engaged in actively pursuing them. I mean, in, in other words, I was out somewhere concealed, hiding, t- attempting to elicit some sort of contact, either through wood knocking or I had, or I was in a spot where someone else had previously seen one recently or even longer than that. But um, the majority of, of the ones I've seen have been during the day. I mean, there's just, there's no doubt about that. I've had some, some nighttime visuals, but, uh, you know, through a thermal, uh, a couple through a thermal, but uh, most, most have been during the daytime. And I'm trying to think back about the times of the day, I can't ever recall having seen one in the morning. You know, I want to say most of them are in the late afternoon to evening, early evening that I've seen. Oh, good, actually. Yeah, and, t- and typically it's been, it's been uh, just uh, the result of several things coming together. That is, I was in the right place at the right time doing nothing. That is, I was attempting to hide. I was, you know, trying not to be obtrusive in the environment to the extent possible. And I, I guess one thing I could draw from that cliff is I, 
and, and I know people say, I, I hear people say this often that, you know, you can't fool these things that, you know, they know you're there before you get there. And I, I understand all that and I appreciate it, but we have fooled them. I, I think, I think a lot of these encounters are that they're making mistakes. And the fact that we're just there, like I said, in the right time at the right place, we're able to capitalize to the extent that we can see them. We haven't, you know, and it's very frustrating. We haven't been able to get, you know, photos, film. We haven't been able to get the empirical evidence that science requires. But I think in the future, we're, we're definitely going to start pushing photographic and film evidence to a far greater extent than we have in the past. And I think that's a, I think that's a mistake we've made in the past is that we've, we've neglected that. We've neglected the pursuit of photographic and film evidence because, you know, people say, well, you know, that's not going to do it. The Patterson-Gimlin footage, you know, that's, that's a great piece of footage and it hasn't proven anything. But, you know, I can't help but think if we can collect, and it's easier said than done, of course, but if we, if we can collect a portfolio of photos and film, I think the possibilities are virtually endless as to where that will lead. Well, yeah, and um, a couple things uh, that a couple things about what you said. Uh, number one, I'm glad you aren't seeing him in the morning because I like to sleep in when I'm out in the woods. Um, <laughs> I'm very thankful about that, really. Um, and, and as far as uh, photographic evidence, I know that you know, moneymakers are really interested in that. Of course, moneymakers not a gun guy, and I, I, I am strong. I strongly advocate keeping guns away from moneymaker. Um, but at the same time, <laughs> uh, um, he understands the 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 idea of um, the effect that uh, photographs would have on the public. As and part of the public are scientists. If yeah. you can get good, nice, compelling photographic or video evidence of Sasquatches, it will go a long ways towards the advocacy of the species and protection and also getting more people interested. And I'll even go further. Uh, I've mentioned it before on the show. Um, in, in a private conversation with Dr. Todd Disatel, um, he told me that he believes one can avoid collecting a holotype and still prove the species is real if, if you could get repeated high-quality video and combine that with repeated footprint cast evidence and repeated DNA all from the same location. And if you can do that at Area X, that, that's what you got, man. So, I mean, obviously the video, I think, is probably the hardest. Um, tracks are also difficult. I understand Area X isn't really conducive to them, but there are areas that I'm certain there are areas that you can pull prints um, and even messy prints. Yeah, I mean, we're not looking at the Hereford cast. We're not looking at those beautiful PG casts. We're looking at real footprints in the ground and real footprints of Sasquatches are messy and sloppy and they don't look right. Um, most people don't appreciate that because of uh, pictures in the books and stuff. And then DNA, I think that's another thing that you guys could probably get over the long haul in one of your study locations. So you might be on the right track uh, by putting down the gun for a little while and then trying this other thing um, because there is an avenue towards proving the species and the benefit that what, uh, what will come from a positive PR campaign with the public. Yeah, I, I find nothing that you said objectionable. In fact, I don't carry a long gun anymore. I I, I carry a Canon camera. That's my that's my tool. That is my preferred tool now, and I've, I've become pretty decent with it. Um, and I, I mean, I'll just tell you, I'm I'm convinced that some of the visuals I had in the past, and I didn't carry a camera when I saw the two Bobo that I was talking about, but I'm convinced that had I had a camera then, I think I could have got that guy. I think I could have gotten him. A camera is far more, it's far less obtrusive than a, than a rifle. It's, it's easier to wield. It's just, it just doesn't stick out. It's not, it's not heavy. It's not cumbersome. And I'm much faster 
and, and there's so many things that can go wrong with a gun versus a camera. Nothing can go wrong with a camera. Nothing. You can you can take pictures all day long of every single thing you see, whether it's it doesn't matter if it's a person, an animal, or or whatever it is. You you shoot it with the camera. And there's no hesitancy. You don't have to think about, okay, what am I seeing here? You just shoot it. And so my job now in, in the organization, I'm helping to lead what we call the camera core. So we are energizing a group of individuals within the organization committed to getting photos and film, and we call them the camera core. The next team I'm leading in there this year, five, five of them are going to be camera core guys. And so um, I'm excited about that uh, because, I, again, I think looking back, I wish I'd had a camera and, and I wished I had used a camera in the past. And it's unfortunate. And, and it is what it is, though. I mean, but, but the, the organization did not focus on getting photos and film. Uh, we have not focused on that. And that's why we don't have pictures. And it's people ask us that, well, why don't you have any pictures? You've, you've seen these things. You've done all this. You've had all these encounters. Well, it's because we haven't really tried. I mean, we did, we had a, uh, a camera trap project back in the, uh, back 2006 to 2011, but we've never really had any sort of coordinated, dedicated effort by people in the field to go out as wildlife photographers with the, with the sole purpose of getting photos and film. We've not done that, but we're doing that. We're, we are now doing that, and I'm excited about it. For one reason, I think, I've, I believe, getting photos and film is going to be easier. And, and, and like I said, there's just there's no risk with it. There's no risk involved whatsoever. I can go anywhere. I can go to some state park where some guy claims he saw one, and I can go there with my camera, and I don't have to worry about you know uh, any any sort of – risk involved because I, all, I'm, all I'm willing is a camera. There's no weapon. I don't know. I just, I, I'm just excited about it, excited about the prospects of, of doing that. You guys think of using real film cameras so you don't have to deal with any digital BS, you know, like the starting up and all that, something you can just pick up, point, and click? Well, see, Bubba, the, the camera I've got, dude, it it is exactly what you just described, man. It's it's a digital, but it never goes dead. Yeah, I mean, if all I have to do is pull it up, Put autofocus, give, get, get autofocus, and, and, and it only takes like a half second. I mean, I can, so I'm carrying the camera in the low ready already. I've got it on a strap. I've got it in the low ready. And if I'm, say, if I'm walking down the trail, it's just like carrying a weapon to me. I mean, I'm so, I'm very used to carrying weapons in that sort of environment. But the, so now I've just traded a camera for that. So I've got this camera in the low ready. Well, I see a white tailed deer ahead of me. Boom, the camera comes up to my eye, autofocus, and then I start taking photos. It doesn't, it doesn't, there, there is no time. It doesn't require this sort of uh, buffer time where it has to power up. It's, it stays on and it's, this, uh, it's, it's just, uh, it's, it's activated just by me pressing the, the trigger. It's always on. I could take it out of the case right now, put the lens on it and it's ready to go. What, what does something like that cost? I got mine used off of a photogra- uh, photography website and it was about 300 bucks for the camera. And I paid about seven hundred for the lens. I think the whole setup, uh, turnkey, everything was around twelve hundred bucks. That includes the Pelican case, or fourteen hundred dollars, I think, with the Pelican case. And but I got extra batteries and a charging kit and all kinds of stuff. There are other ways to go. I mean, if you don't want to spend that kind of money, but there's a guy that's in our organization. He has a five hundred dollar budget, and I think 
I think the other the other more experienced photographers have already got him something picked out, and he may have already bought it. Yeah, so I mean, I'm just, and I've been training with that camera. I mean, I go out to state parks, and my wife and I go hiking all the time, and go out over to the river, and uh, you know, just just train on people, train on animals. Just uh, you just you just hike down the trail, and you see something, boom, bring that camera up, take take photos. Some of them are not going to be great. You know, but I'm practicing for speed and accuracy. Yeah. So I, you're like Roger Patterson. Yeah, I mean that's I'm training for speed and accuracy. So I, I think, and I've got it set, Bobo, so that all I have to do is press the trigger one time, and it automatically keeps popping photos. So I could conceivably, if I could see one, if I could get him, if I could get my lens on one for three, four seconds, dude, I may have I may have a half dozen or ten photos when he's gone. But by, by the time he's out of out of sight. Now, some of them, a couple of them may be blurry because I'm, I'm using an autofocus and it depends on how thick the stuff is that he's in. But if he's in that, if he's in a clearance, if he's, if he's in a cleared area or if he's stepping across a trail or if he's standing there when I first see him, I mean, maybe I see him before he sees me. I should be able to bust him. I, I should be able to do that. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Sonidos of our music. Sonidos of our voices. Sonidos of our stories. Listen to the sounds and voices of Latin music and culture with Pandora stations like RMX, La Vida en Pop, El Pulso en Satélites, and podcasts like Ruby Rosa and more. From music to stories, all that we are is in the sonidos of our culture. Listen now on Pandora. For people listening right now, what and, and who may want to try to duplicate what you guys are doing and get a pretty decent camera, like that, what, what are some of the things that they need to get in a camera? Um, like, I, I don't know what I'm talking about. The specs. I mean, what are some of the capabilities? You mentioned, for example, pushing the, the the shutter once and then taking numerous pictures. What are some other capabilities of you think what the perfect camera for what you're doing would be? So people listening might be able to um, say copycat and go out and get similar uh, devices. What I was concerned with, the, the highest priorities for me was a very fast and good autofocus and a camera that I could just, that I never had to turn on or off. A camera that was very well adapted to wildlife photography. So those were the things that I wanted in a camera. And the, one of our guys, he's an expert and he's a, he's a, I mean, he's a, he was published in Nat Geo. He found this for me. He found the, the unit for me, and um, it didn't take long to get up to speed on it. Uh, there's a lot of bells and whistles on there that I'm not really concerned with. You know, I just wanted something that's going to take pictures fast. That's going to have a really good autofocus. So all I have to do, I have a little, I have a little, it's like a little dot in the center of of the uh, of the visual, and I just put the dot on the target. And press, just depress the button slightly, it autofocuses. And then I can just start taking pictures that quick. And so that's what I was concerned with speed, a great autofocus, and, uh, you know, one that I never had to turn on or off that was just basically just active the whole time. So I have a Canon EOS 7D. Uh, fantastic, fantastic camera. Love it, love it, love it. And uh, and then I have a uh, Canon EF seventy uh, to two hundred millimeter f four L. Um, I 
kind of wish I had a 400 millimeter or 300 millimeter to get a little, little better zoom. But this is this is pretty good. I mean, this is I'm very happy with this setup, um, and I I highly recommend it. I, I bought used, um, and like I said, I got a you know I got the Pelican case, and I got all kinds of spare equipment. I got all kinds of things to go with it, and I think I spent twelve to fourteen hundred bucks on that. I had to sell a rifle to get it. <laughs> oh, sacrifice! <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. I've got plenty. I've got plenty of guns, so I sold a I sold a rifle, and uh, well, that's what my wife said. She said, "Well, you can get it, but you're gonna have to sell a gun." I was like, oh, "Okay, honey." Something you said, I think, is so important is that no matter what you're doing, I mean, obviously, you'd want to do this with a rifle because so much is at stake if you're carrying around a rifle. But we've, any any piece of gear you have, whether it's uh, you know a, a camera like a, a DSLR camera like what you have or a thermal imager or anything like that, or even an audio recorder, really, when you think about it, you got to practice. You have to practice as much as you possibly can, um, that just because you know when the when if if you're lucky enough and a Sasquatch does appear in front of you for those one and a half to two and a half seconds, man, if you haven't practiced, you're gonna blow it. You are gonna make mistakes. As Bobo mentioned, Roger Patterson practiced all the time, and that's part of the reason he got the footage. So I, I really congratulate you on doing a good job on practicing on known subjects and every other piece of wildlife you can find. So good for you, man. Kudos. Well, thank you. I, you know, I think that goes back to my military training because that's what that's what you do in the military, Cliff. You just sort of it becomes repetitious, and and after a while, it becomes almost just sort of instinctive because you train so much. <laughs> you know, that's not to say you still can't make mistakes. You absolutely can, but it just it's so much better if you train, if you practice, and uh, you get used to, especially a new piece of equipment. I've not been a photographer in the past. This is something I just took up within the last year and a half, and um, I think I'm doing pretty, pretty okay. You know, I'm never going to be a professional, but that's not what I'm aspiring to be. I'm, I'm aspiring to get some, some good, a good, a series of good, solid, clear photographs of a Sasquatch. That's what I'm aspiring to do. And I think I can do that. I've gotten some really good wildlife photos. Um, and I, th- I think I can translate that. I'm, you know, I've been doing this a long time and, um, I know that area, like the back of my hand down there, area X and, uh, sort of like a fish in water in that environment. And, uh, I just, you know, I just pray that I will be blessed with another visual that I will be able to, uh, to execute properly with that camera. Yeah. I have confidence that I can do it. Well, we'll see. Looking, I asked you earlier about the patterns that you might have seen with your own encounters. Um, and I, I'm going to ask you now, using that information, combining it with uh, information for the entire group of the entire time you've been at Area X and the other locations in that general vicinity. So looking at the patterns, how do you use data either your own personal data or the group's data to inform decisions about strategies, locations, and techniques in order to get these pictures that you're hoping for. So, yeah, we just, I mean, we, we intensely study our after action reports that those are our, those are the reports that each field team generates uh, after they have spent their time in the field. Uh, We, we have an analytical website into which we feed all those data and it just requires that we study the data. We look at maps. We, we chart. We map the visuals. We map not only visuals, but we map other sorts of encounters, uh, the, uh, the, the audio signals that, that uh, we are convinced are connected to these animals, like the, the so-called wood knocking, um, which uh, I was very skeptical about that up until about 2011 or so. And 
uh, definitely been baptized under fire and I have no doubts whatsoever that that's some form of communication that they use. But we just study those, and then we have training camps. We uh, we bring all our new people to that, and we also we highly encourage our uh, our seasoned people to come back because you're always you, you should always be able to learn new things, right? Because there may be some sort of new piece of information that we gleaned from last year's operation that we can now implement that we can that we can take advantage of that and. And, and and modify what we're doing, want to modify what we've done in the past. And so that's what we do. We take those patterns, we look at them, we look look for any new patterns that may have emerged, and we always, always, always looking for some sort of just some sort of advantage, no matter how minor. It could be the slightest little advantage, but we need every advantage we can get. And so we're always looking to glean from the data something that will afford us the smallest of advantages when we take the field the next time from last year's operation. We've, we've got something else. We're going to, we're going to try this year. My, my, in fact, my team going in alpha team, we've got a, a place we call the triangle uh, based on information from the past. We're going to focus. My, my camera core guys are going to focus on what we call the triangle. And we're going to try some, hopefully try some novel techniques and tactics in there and we'll see what comes out of that. But um, the triangle is an area with a, with a, a high number of, 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 of encounters in the past. How, how big an area is this triangle? The triangle is about 500 meters. It's about two or three football fields on each side of the triangle. Not real big. Yeah. It isn't really big. Interesting. Now, are, are you finding that most of your stuff happens in the same areas? Um, and because that's what I've been finding with my own data, um, I don't think these things move around that much. I think that they they go back to the same spots again and again. I think that uh, their areas, you know, they, they do roam a little bit, of course. But you know, you have a five or ten mile by a five or ten mile area. That's it, man. That's really kind of it. They don't wander too far out of there. And even within that area, there's little microcosms that they hang out in more, which it sounds like you've discovered as well. Uh, there's this one particular place that we've been working uh, through the museum. Um, we found footprints on the same quarter mile, half mile stretch of road, I think three or four times in the last year, for example. Um, are you finding that kind of that that, that kind of pattern as well, or uh, it, or do you? It's a little bit more dispersed. No, it's not. It's not more dispersed. We believe that for the last decade, we have pounced on what we believe is a core area. A core area would be where birthing takes place, where raising of young takes place, where it is, it is a sanctum. We believe we know where that area is. And the farther away you get from that area, Cliff, the fewer and far between the encounters become. It's not to say you won't have encounters away from there. They, they still happen, but the frequency is much less. And so this triangle is very near the core. Um, it's about as close as we can get. I, th- I think that that's key. If you can find a core or a territory, and obviously you, you're, you found something there. If you've got four tracks, these are four different individuals, uh, those tracks you're talking about, Cliff? No, we think they're the same one, actually. Well, that yeah, that's that he, he travels, it travels that area with frequency. So that, I would, I would, sink my fangs into that area and I wouldn't let it go because he's staying there for some reason. And either you're close to a core, you're in a territory or something. And, and, and to agree with you, yeah, I don't think that they, I think 
this this is our hypothesis. We think young males venture out and they and they they separate from a troop. But we think at least our experience, our observations in Area X tells us that there is a troop there that is not transigent. They're residents. They've been there f- at, at least for two decades because that's when we that's when we started going in there and we've and we've we've had activity for the last two decades there. And it, and it was when we when, when we began when we began sitting there when we began staying there for prolonged periods of time that's when that's when all the you know we began documenting more more encounters more activity because we wouldn't leave we stayed in place overnight over over a week over a month over several months twenty four seven and so that allowed us to document a lot more activity um, and they never left they've still not I mean we still have encounters we had encounters last summer. Do you have any idea how many individuals there may be in this particular area? Given the descriptions we've had, there's got to be at least a half dozen, seven or eight, uh, given the descriptions. And those descriptions vary. We've seen little ones. I mean, we've seen seen little ones the size of small chimps. Uh, We've seen uh, a couple of big gray ones together, which we think are probably matured individuals. Um, We've seen uh, reddish brown. We've seen a blonde one. We've seen a black one. And using, you know, being very conservative, that would tell us that there's probably at least a half dozen, maybe six, seven, eight there. Wow, that's a lot. Wow. Yeah, and that's what that's what I'm saying. It's it's it's, it's we think it's a core area because we've seen young ones, we've seen small ones there. Sure. Yeah. You know, and we we were not the first ones to see the small one there. The um, one of the reports that that was reported to us back in the early 2000s was of a small one up in a tree. Uh, a hunter was up, he was in a tree stand and he saw one up in the tree that looked like a chimp. And it was a small one. It was three, three and a half feet tall. And he said it looked like a, a completely black chimp. Uh, you know, ch- the young chimps normally have like a flesh tone face, whatever. This thing had, it was completely black. And it stood up on a limb, looked at him, and then it was, it was gone. Hey, Dara, I was just re listening to one of our episodes. We did, we did an interview with this guy, Ray Doherty from Australia, a Yowie researcher. And he was saying that they found that they've been going out more in the daylight, and they don't think that they can see beyond 50 meters very well in the daylight. He thinks they can see further better at night than in the day, actually. Well, it's, you know, it's pure speculation, but I, you know, I'm, I don't know that they can see as well at night as they have been purported to see. And I've, I base that just on strictly on our own observations. That is, when we run a dark camp, no lights, no fire, Nothing, just completely in a dark camp. The encounters we've had with them seem to indicate that they can't see us that well. They'll come in closer, perhaps to see us. Um, the, the the one I talked about in 2019 that I saw in the thermal, it, it didn't really. See, I mean, it wasn't really alerted at all. And I stood up and I was I was looking right at it. And I, and this was this went on for 45 seconds, a minute. Was it your naked eye? Was it, you said you have a like like a like did you have a night vision or was it your naked eye you saw? No, it was thermal. It was a thermal scope. Okay, and it did not have recording capability, so I did not. I was not able to get any sort of uh, recording of it. But I watched it, and I, the problem, Bob, was I wasn't sure whether I was looking. I mean, it looked like a dude, man, and it's you know you have this you have this sort of um, sort of moral ethical voice inside you that says, okay, what I'm seeing looks like a person. I can't do anything that's going to risk the life of a human being. So even though you, your logical side is saying, okay, I'm out here in the pitch darkness, 
in the middle of a wilderness. We're the only ones here. They were the only people for 15 miles in any direction. That's not a person. But what but then what you're what you're seeing with your eyes tells you that it looks so much like a person. And it was broken up somewhat by by the foliage and the vegetation. But, you know, when it reached its arm up and sort of grabbed the limb above it, it's just, you know, I got chills all over my body and and then it just sort of backed away. But my point is, it never acted. It never acted highly alert to to my action. I mean, I stood up and I looked and I was standing there watching it. Now, in 2017, there were three of us. The one I just told you about, there were two of us watching it. In 2017, there were three of us watching it. One of us had a thermal. One could see the eyes with no visual aid. The eyes were reflective, or they had, he could see the eyes with, with, with no help. And we were sitting in, in a dark camp again. And then the third guy had a night, had a, a third gen night vision. And again, this thing was peeking around the tree at us. And this, this visual was for 45 seconds, a minute, two minutes. I can't rem- remember exactly, but we watched it for a good while. And it never really seemed to be too alert to us standing there looking at it. Daytime, you just you so much as move. They're gone. You know, I, I don't know what their capabilities are for daytime eyesight, but I, I do know that they can see. They can see pretty well, uh, just given, you know, what, what I've observed, what, uh, you know, I've, what others in the organization uh, have observed. So um, they can see at night and day. Now, which one is better? I couldn't tell you. I just don't know. But um, I just don't know that their visual acuity is just, you know, just super, super at night the way that some people have reported in the past. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. I thought they could see really well at night because uh, when I had my first for sure encounter, when they bluff charged me, they ran across this meadow that was just completely riddled with gopher holes and mounds of dirt. And there wasn't, you couldn't go more than 18 inches in, in a, a radius around there without stepping in a, a pile of, of dirt. And these things ran across and didn't hit one of the piles. Like they ran like at 40 miles an hour. Yeah. Area X is the same way, dude. It's, it's just a, it's just a rock just a rocky boulder strewn place that if a human being goes to tries to go through that stuff at night, you're going to break your legs, your back. These things seem to maneuver through that stuff like nothing at night. There's no doubt about that. Um, But for some reason they seem to be a little, I don't know. When we, when we're not running lights, but well, they just seem to be, um, they don't seem to be as, as good at seeing us. Mm. As as they would, uh, I guarantee you, during the daytime, if there were one standing forty, we measured that that one I saw uh, through the thermal. He's forty seven yards, forty seven yards away. If there was one in the daytime for forty seven yards standing there, and I stood up and looked at him, he's gone. He's gone. Right. Um, but this guy, man, he was not in a hurry to get away. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. I think that you hit upon something that I think is a good exercise for all Bigfooters is to question what you think you know about them. And I've been trying to do that a lot more, especially in the last couple of years, you know, as I'm getting better data and like zeroing in on a couple locations of interest. Um, you know, for example, you know, I've said it not that long ago uh, during one of our Q and A's, you know, what's one of the things that you don't really talk about so much that, uh, but that you think, you know, so I don't think they're as smart as everybody thinks they're as smart. 
as you know, everybody puts them in this genius level intelligence and all that stuff. It's like, I don't think so, man. I, I think that they're very ape level intelligence, um, a smart ape. They're not human, but they're probably smarter, a little smarter than chimps, you know, um, whatever that, you know, however smart, I don't know. I think it's the way they use their intelligence combined with their strength that gives them such an advantage, not their intelligence. Yeah, yeah, sure. They're smart. They're not like, they're not like bears. They're not like, you know, African gray parrots that are also very intelligent and do various things. They're, they have a different flavor flavor of intelligence that we have a hard time wrapping our head around because we're very species centric in our, um, in our perceptions of other animals. So, um, and you're saying now that you don't think that perhaps you're open to you're, 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 you're casting some doubt on this idea that they see perfectly well at night, which I find fascinating. Can you think of anything else off the top of your head uh, of these, uh, givens that 90%, 99% of the Bigfooters out there say this about Bigfoot? But you're not so convinced that's the case because I think that would be fascinating to listen to. Uh, well, that's uh, it's kind of putting me on the spot there. It is, I know, but I really want to know the answer. I'm sorry, but what a, I'm, I'm excited yeah, no, about okay. my question. Uh, it's, it's okay. I like yeah. I like I like I like you making me think here. I like that. Um, I, I think a lot of the well, what we would call established literature uh, seems to depict them as as these these sort of. Um, solo sort of solitary individuals much like an orangutan but based on what we've seen in area x our observations are that where there's one there's probably going to be another one and there may even be another one and at least in area x and that's that's generally i mean that's that's 98 percent of my knowledge base is given what we've seen and experienced observed in area x they do not operate solitarily. There's generally going to be, if where there's one, we, in fact, we tell our trainees that where there's one, there's others. Keep that in mind. If you see one, there's probably another one not very far from there. And so that's, I think that's, you know, that sort of breaks, breaks with the stereotype as well, that it's this solo, this solitary uh, animal that just sort of moves around from place to place. And I, I think that's, I, I don't think that's correct. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. I think we have to let we just have to let the data lead us, Cliff. We just have to let the data lead us and just um, you know, let the data take us where it may. And so that's that's wh- that's what it tells me. It's just that uh, you know, I, I I'm just not convinced that they can see that they have super supervision at night. Yeah, I, I'm a hundred percent in agreement with you about them moving in small numbers. I, I, I was surprised to hear you think there's six or seven, and I, that's really interesting to me. I'm going to definitely open my mind a little bit about some other areas I've been working because the numbers out here, I've always settled into about three or four, maybe five, but three or four mm-hmm. would, is the more, most comfortable number for me out of my neck of the woods. But as far as them moving around solo, I've never, I, I, yeah, maybe occasionally, but if, if they're alone, why are they knocking? Why are they making calls at all? They're not doing it for our benefit. Excellent. That's critical analysis right there. That's perfect. Perfect analysis. Exactly. Uh, and, and, and we have reports, right? We have reports of these things being observed hunting, and you, and you have a knock from one, one side of the woods. You have a knock from another side of the woods. You have a knock from the other side of the woods. And I know that's difficult for some people to, to wrap their minds around, but you know, chimps do it. Chimps are very... Chimps coordinate uh, very well together. They, they they go to war, and I think there are, besides the vicious temper, other than the vicious temper, I think there are there are some parallels between chimps and these things. 
and some of their behavior. So have, have you, have you, have you guys ever, you think that they drive out like adolescent, like uh, when the males get more mature. So have you, have you guys recorded or heard audio or found like a sign of them like battling or kicking somebody out? I mean, I wish we did. No, no, nobody's observed that. We've not heard any, any sounds like them. We've heard some very, very strange sounds that we possibly attribute to, to Sasquatches, but I wouldn't say we've heard anything that sounds like anybody's having a you know a, a blood battle or anything like that. I've, I've I've observed, and some some of the other guys have observed what was what were very aggressive return calls at close range when we've brought when we've played the uh, the uh, Ohio Howl, which I believe is is absolutely uh, a, a valid recording. Uh, of a Sasquatch. I think that's the real deal. I've heard that in the woods a number of times myself over the years. I've had very aggressive responses to it. What's the most, what's the most popular or the most common type of vocalizations you hear? Screams, yells, uh, howls. I've heard Ohio howls. I've heard whoops. I've heard, I've heard this a lot. Yeah. I've, I've, you know, it's like a hoot, a pant hoot, almost like, uh, some sort of like a, well, just like a gorilla. Heard that a lot. We have recordings of that. Um, I've heard what we call faux speech. It's it's a it's a sort of a almost sounds like speech, but it's uh, it's uh, to our ears anyway, to our brains and ears. It's a gibberish. Don't know what to make of that. Don't know what it is. How, how often do you hear that gibberish? It's not real often, but we've we've heard it. We've heard it a number of times through the years. Like two two of them going back and forth, or just one mumbling to itself. You know, I don't think we've ever heard two going back and forth. I mean, I've responded to that before. I had two guys in the cabin. I was outside the cabin. This was in 2014. And we just had a big, the two guys were in the cabin. They were sleeping. Uh, this is about eight o'clock at night. They were sleeping because they were going to get up to relieve me at midnight. They were going to take like a, an overnight watch. So they were in the cabin. One of them wasn't asleep. He heard the whole thing. But uh, so we, a big boulder was thrown behind the cabin, rolled down the mountain, was tossed through the air. Then it bounced and rolled almost up to the cabin. And I was standing out there when this happened. And uh, I did some sort of, I think I did some sort of uh, like a chimp, uh, like I made some chimp sounds or something. And then I just heard something like what I did just a little earlier, just a, and I just did it back, heard it again. I think that's about the closest thing to you know, responding that we've ever heard. Um, but I've never heard two. I don't think anyone that I can recall in the organization has heard two of them making that sound back and forth. Are you, are you guys planning on? Are you guys planning on putting out more audio recorders like around the the property? Yeah, we used to do that a lot, and I'm a big proponent of that. And some of the guys have, have started uh, recording, have, bringing their own recording equipment and recording audio. But um, all my teams, we, we always push for for uh, having overnight audio recording. And in the, in the past, some of us have even carried uh, audio recording task cams on our on our backpacks as we as we go out, and we've recorded some some pretty cool things doing that as well. Nice. So, and you know the the podcast that Matt Pruitt and I do, um, Apes Among Us. We had one of our episodes dedicated to some of the sounds we've captured in Area X, called Soundscape X, is the name of the episode. And one of our autonomous recording units captured about seventeen or eighteen whoops, and that those are featured on that on that episode. But uh, yeah, that's it's sort of the gamut. I mean, you just you have the howls. Oh, we've had the the screams. 
Is there any time of day you guys notice the, the vocals? Mostly at night. Oh, good. Not during the day then. Interesting. Okay. Not during the daytime. Not 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 very often at all. In fact, I'm trying to remember. If we've, yeah, I've heard a few during the day. One of the one of the in fact one of the most notable vocalizations I've ever heard was during the daytime. It was about five o'clock one evening. Uh, two other guys and I heard it. It was a, what we call a pant hoot, and it was very close, very loud, reverberated through the valley, um, very intimidating, and it went on for twenty thirty seconds. Just. <gasps> And it's, you know, just sound like a big eight foot tall chimp, <laughs> you know, wow. 40, 50 yards away from us in the woods. So uh, here's a question for you. Um, uh, you know, you, you've gone through most of the vocalizations that we're all kind of familiar with, you know, the, um, the, the, the whoops and the long howls and all that sort of stuff. Um, but one of the things I, I'm really interested in is I, I'm thinking these things are, I mentioned earlier, like kind of like parrots. I, I think that they imitate um, a lot of sounds that aren't necessarily vocalization sounds, but they can vocalize and make those sounds somehow. Um, most commonly, I, I very often talk about the the car door slamming sound, and I know several other researchers who have heard a similar thing. And I think one, I think even I, I think one came from Area X. Actually, um, have you? What other sort of non I'll, I'll call them non-organic sounds might you guys have heard down in Area X. And I, I, I've personally heard car doors slamming where I'm completely confident there were no cars. Um, I've also heard metallic chimes dinging or whatever I, in, in places like in Alaska. I heard one of those on the show, for example. I've heard a lot of weird non-organic sounds out in the woods. And I'm, I'm wondering, I mean, how many of those are Sasquatches or am I just nuts? Have you guys heard stuff like that out there? Yeah, yeah, we do. I'm not even really comfortable talking about them because they're so bizarre. You know, the, the slamming sound you're talking about. I mean, I, what does that? How, how does that sound? How's that sound propagated out in the wilderness area? And there's no people around you. There's no vehicles out there. You can hear a vehicle coming from miles down the rocky trail. You can, you know, anything, you can hear ATVs. You can hear people. You can hear voices from people talking. Uh, it's just, you know, these are the sorts of things that are just, they trouble you <laughs> because you can't, you can't, you can't put your finger on what it is, how it's happening. The slam, uh, you know, uh, like you said, some like metal tinking sounds. And, and yes, I think it's prevailing opinion within the NAWAC that they mimic. We've had them mimic sounds before. Uh, for instance, we had one individual climbing, he was walking across the, uh, the, the metal roof of, of a cabin and, up the mountain, I guess 60 yards, 50, 60 yards, hard to tell. And I'm not even really comfortable talking about it because it's, I can't put it in a box. I don't know what to do with this. But you hear the <laughs> same thing. You hear, you know, like like 20 seconds later, you hear this. It sounds like this. It sounds this, it's the same sound that your buddy just made as he walked across the roof of the, of the, of the cabin. This thing is, the sound is up on the mountain. It's the same sound that your buddy just made as he walked across the roof. And what do you do with that? I just, I think you just, you, I think you just say Bigfoots are like parrots and they mimic things. I mean, a lot of native traditions say they do that. And I've gotten some interesting reports over the years. Uh, one I think I've mentioned on the show before is that there's a gentleman, I think, in Virginia who uh, was walking his dog daily in um, the, the nature preserve, the wildlife preserve that he lived next to. And he had a golden retriever or something. And he would go, hey, hey, come here, like that sort of thing. Oh, my dog just looked at me. But like, hey, hey, come here. You know, and the dog that would come or whatever. And he saw a Sasquatch in the preserve. So he 
knew they were there. And uh, like a year or two, mm-hmm. maybe three years later, he was walking there one day and he heard his own voice calling to his dog. <laughs> you know what? That's when I'm like, okay, I'm out of here, man. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> that's what he did too. Yeah. But, but, but then again, I, I think that's the Sasquatch. I think that they can imitate to that level. You know, and people, the 800 pound owls and all that stuff. Yeah. I don't know. You know, 15, 20 years ago, Cliff, you know, this, I would have just laughed at this stuff and I would have said, it's nuts. I'm way ahead of you guys. <laughs> now it's like, okay, you know, I, whatever. I, I mean, I, 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 I wouldn't be surprised at, you know, at anything. <laughs> the data strongly suggests it. It should at least be entertained. Um, and I Absolutely. think it's real. I think they're doing it. Yeah. I think they're doing it. I, I mean, I've heard, I've heard what had to be a Sasquatch, a wood ape mimic one of my buddies. How, how well? Oh, very, very well. You, it, Bobo, you would have, you would, dude, you would have freaked out. I mean, you, you would have, you would have been calm, but it would have been freaky. It was freaky to all of us. And we were all pretty seasoned investigators. This whole team was very seasoned. And, and it freaked us out. It just freaked us out. So so it's about 10 o'clock at night. Bob Strain, Tony Schmidt, Phil Burroughs, and me. And we hear – so we hear to the west. We're, we're not running a, da- a, a dark camp. We've got a f- campfire going. We're sitting around the fire circle. And it's about 10 o'clock at night, and we hear – off to the west, the whoop. And so I said, Tony, answer it. So Tony cuts his whoop and it's different. Tony does a different, it's a different whoop than what he heard, but it's, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a sound he produces. This thing modified its original sound. They, they, they repeated this gentlemen three or four times back and forth. It would, it would, it would produce this vocalization, this whoop vocalization. And Tony would respond. Then it would respond. And every time its vocalization became more and more like Tony's to where when it finally stopped, they sounded almost the same. I mean, it it was like there was a person out there. It was so uncanny in the way this thing sort of adopted Tony's vocalization and began doing it. Like it was wanting to speak the same language Tony was speaking. It was just so bizarre. And there, there, I mean, there are other encounters like that where we've witnessed this sort of mimicry um, parroting and it's it's bizarre it's just bizarre and i'm with you cliff you know they they i think they have an incredible and uncanny ability to do that which is of course is not unprecedented in in, in the animal kingdom right no not at all yeah yeah oh and, and, and also we have the you who the, the, this has to be part of the show so so a, a guy and i were there uh sometimes when i get up in the middle of night from if i you know if i'm in the cab and get up go outside take a leak sometimes i'll just go you you know, just it, you know, it echoes through the valley, and it's just kind of it's real quiet and still, and you just kind of do that. So, did that one night, and my teammate and I get up about five thirty the next morning because we're we're going to pack up and we're leaving. It's the last night there, and we'd already had just a ton of stuff going on. We had one run and slapped the side of the tent. By the way, that night we were, we had a big tent, and the night before we went one had we heard it running. It comes up and it hits the side of the tent and then runs off. That that was the previous. That was the previous night. So, the, so I get up at about three in the morning, take a leak, and I do the yoo-hoo sounds. And then we get up at five thirty the next morning to get ready. It's still dark. And what do we hear? Yoo-hoo. 
And we just look at each other, you know, it's just like, you got to be kidding me. Hmm. And so I answered back and, you know, same thing. <laughs> um, so <laughs> yeah, it's just, you know, again, and nothing would surprise me at this point. <laughs> Maybe Renee had the uh, right idea doing that you who call. She did. Oh yeah, her first vocalization ever was a long <laughs> you who. Yeah, if only one would have answered her. Yeah, convinced her. <laughs> hey, have you ever felt menaced out there? Like you felt like you were being stalked, like 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 growling at you, and like you thought like you were in danger. For sure, for sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. I've been scared in there many times. No, no doubt about it. What's the most threatening thing you've had them do to you? Most threatening thing I've had, um, you know, just when you when you walk, so so so, say you're hiking at night. You you've already heard some vocalizations. You've heard some wood knocking, and you're approaching this thing. You're approaching where you think it is, and you walk past an area, and then you hear this nasty, gnarly, deep, visceral growl, and the thing's like ten yards away from you in the woods. I mean, that just shakes you to your core. I can't even do it. I can't even begin to do that justice. Um, you know, we've had, I've never been bluff charged, but we've had guys that have been charged and they felt like their lives were absolutely in danger. No doubt about it. There's a, a, a man that I, I met recently. He called the shop actually because um, he didn't know what to do about the Bigfoots on his property. And this is a new situation. I haven't even talked. I haven't even talked about it on the show yet, or haven't even really told Bobo about it either. But um, I, I've been talking to this witness. He's a long-term witness um, that I'm gonna. I haven't been to his house yet because of this COVID thing. But um, I'm gonna start working with him pretty closely and try to get some better stuff out of there. But one of the things that he's most concerned about is that uh, one of the times that he's actually observed the Sasquatch. He saw two of them and then um, he was backing away um, and then he eventually turned and started quickly walking out of the area when he felt it was safe enough to do so when he put enough distance between him. And, uh, and then, but he was hit in the back of the legs by a stick or he described it as a log, but if it was a, too big of a log, he, you know, he probably wouldn't have walked away as a thing. So I'm assuming it's a stick. So uh, these things actually threw something at a, a log or a sticker at him and, and knocked him down. Um, have you guys had any occurrences where you've been hit um, by anything more than pebbles? Yeah, yeah. Some of the guys have been hit by rocks before. Uh, some have come very, very close. I've, I mean, I've, I've literally had uh, basketball-sized rocks thrown within me between me and a, and a, and a field partner say we were I guess I don't know, 30 40 yards apart and we saw both saw the rock hit the tree bounce off bounce onto the ground um, we've uh, Ken Helmer had um, had a rock thrown that's the size of a baseball that just missed his head uh, my, my daughter came with me one time in there and of course uh, she, she she was already pretty convinced the things were I mean her father you know all the things that I've I've had happen, but she she really truly I, I guess she she had a uh, she definitely saw the light on the road to Damascus when she was walking from her jeep over to uh, another area and she saw a rock hit the roof of the cabin bounce off and land right in front of her on the ground and it was the size of uh, you know like a baseball. Um, mm. So yeah, I mean, we we've had rocks thrown at. We've engaged in rock what we call rock wars. 
Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, we couldn't see them, but we, that they were throwing rocks at us from, they're up on a slope on a mountain and we throw rocks back up there. They throw rocks at us for at least for a couple of hours uh, back in, uh, in, in 2012, Bobo, we call it the rock wars. Um, we even took a, um, a huge, um, uh, slingshot in there to launch rocks up onto the mountain when they started throwing rocks at us. Oh, was that Bob Strain's idea? I think it was. Yeah. I yeah. Was. Yeah. He, he would talk about that back in like 2010 or 11, but he wanted to launch uh-huh. apples out at them to see what they would do. Yeah. <laughs> well, I I've think he, he may have brought that in. It was a big green band. It was a, and you like put it, you like attach it to two trees. If I recall correctly, you put it to like two trees and then you, it took like a couple of guys to pull the thing back and you just launch rocks up there. Um, <laughs> we, you know, we've done, done that a number of times. I mean, it, and it's pretty disconcerting when you hear when you can hear a rock being thrown from deep in the woods and it's on a it's on a horizontal trajectory through the trees you hear it coming through the trees as a projectile and then it smashes the roof of the cabin it, it affects you like it, like you you just cannot believe it, it, it it's 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 uh, it's just something that is just incredible, incredible to behold. And yes, it is scary, and and uh, I would be lying if, if if I told you that it, it it's not intimidating. It is. The, the 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 thing is though, we we don't allow ourselves to be intimidated out of there. We just remain in the pocket, and um, you, you know, a, after a while, you 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 start to become more desensitized to it. But I don't think it ever. Yeah, I don't think you ever lose that fear. You just have to channel it. You have to. You have to allow it to motivate you and uh, stir you. Um, and that's that's how I've I've learned to deal with it. You know, you just. You, yeah, you have fear, but you just learn to control it, and you learn to, to turn it into energy. But yeah, I mean, there have been a number of times where I've had fear in there, Bobo. And I'm, I'm sure when I go last year, I had had some fear. There were a couple of times that uh, some things happened. I heard one. I couldn't see it. I heard it running. Uh, we, we, we had been engaging with these things in a, uh, in a sort of a wood knocking exercise. We would knock it. They would knock back. Uh, guy, uh, the guy to my left, 100 yards down, he would knock to sort of keep them confused. They, they would knock back and then they started approaching my position from two or three different angles. And when that happens, you get a little intimidated when you can hear something big, huge. It sounds, you know, it literally sounds like uh, just a big animal with thudding footfalls running across a rocky Creek bed. And he's on the, and the, and the Creek bed is on the other side of this, you know, this berm and you can't see it because you're down in a low spot and it's just like rolling hills of rocks with trees. And then you, you hear that thing and he's approaching you and he runs across the creek bed. That certainly has a way of getting your attention, you know, oh, yeah. um, that, that definitely gets your attention and, and intimidates you. But you just have to, after a while, you just sort of learn to just channel it, you know. Everybody gets scared out there. And as you pointed out earlier in the broadcast, you know, I go alone and stuff. And it's not like I don't get scared. I just try not to let fear stop me from doing anything. Yeah, that's that's the that's the key, man. Once you overcome it, once you learn how to overcome it, it's, you know you, you you never sort of turn back. I mean, you you just keep going forward. Um, uh, I think every time I've been in there, uh, no, I'm not every time because not every time I go in there, there there are teams that I've been on where absolutely nothing has happened, zero. 
<laughs> I mean, nothing has happened. But I will say that every time I go in there, there is the potential that something is going to happen that it, that is going to uh, uh, invoke fear in me. Well, what do you think? What do you think them made, made them not actually attack you? You don't think they were really going to attack you? Do, I mean, at the time you might, but when you look back on it, do you think that was really something they might have done? I mean, because they never have. You guys have been there for what fifteen years? Yeah, yeah. I've been going in there since two thousand four. I've never had one attack me, but I always keep that open as a possibility, Bobo, because we're we're dealing with we're dealing with something here that we don't know. We really don't know much about. And as you know, wildlife can be very unpredictable, and particularly if you're dealing with with different individuals who, and these individuals all have different temperaments. They're they're different, you know. They have different places in the hierarchy of the troop. Uh, there's no telling. You 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 may you know you may stumble on, on one that's having a bad day for whatever reason. I don't know, but I always I always have a healthy respect. Um, any any time I'm out there, uh, and I always try to. Try to keep that, uh, you know, in the front of my mind that that we need to be very respectful uh, because we we truly don't know what we're dealing with. Um, you know, we we do have some experience uh, from which to draw, and that experience tells us that if they really truly wanted to hurt us, they could have many times over. There's no doubt about it. When, I mean, we've we've been asleep and these things have come up and bashed the bashed the side of the cabin, or they've run up on the porch. Or you know, or they've they've stood there at the window rattling the cage on the window. You have to think that an animal that can break a tree limb or or heave a, a, a boulder could certainly you know smash his way through the door or the window and and uh, you know grab you by the throat and throw you around like a rag doll if he really wanted to. But I don't know. Maybe they're averse to to, to direct physical con- contact. Maybe they maybe they prefer just to sort of use this this. Uh, tried and true method of intimidation, which always works for them, right? Anytime they're in some state park and there's a family there with uh, kids or whatever, uh, a, a dude and his couple of dogs, I mean, all they have to do is do some faux speech, maybe uh, maybe do some some huffs or some growls and or knock on a tree or something, shake a, shake, shake a tree, and people are gone, right? Most people, 99% of most people that have that sort of encounter, man, they're, they're gone. They never look back, and they're not going back. They're out of there. So it works for them. Um, I think that's part of the part of the reason we're still, you know, we're still onto these things is that we just remain in the pocket more than anything. We 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 were fortunate enough to get into a place where these things seem to be residents, and then we sunk our fangs into it, and we're not letting it go. And I think that's the key. And I think that's it's it's not that we have any sort of magic pill. We haven't, you know, there's no panacea. We haven't figured out the the, the trick to this. It's just that we happen to be in a really good place and we're just not letting go we're just dumb enough to stay there and just keep you know just keep doing this over and over and and try to change our game up here and there and try to try to keep get them to mess up and and uh and fool them from time to time and uh sooner or later man we're going to be able to capitalize on that and uh, we just have to keep trying to stay fresh and try to keep them guessing you know yeah it seems like no one's figured it out yet yeah right right and it's a tough nut to crack you know, it's it's a it's an enthralling thing, but it's at the, at the same time it's very frustrating. You know, I mean, there, there there have been a number of times where I just wanted to throw in the towel and just say I'm done. But you know what, man? There's this this just deep down inside of me. There's just this this visceral sort of response I have that says, you know what? No, based on what I've seen, based on what based on what I have been so fortunate to see and observe, I have a responsibility to see this through 
to the end. And God willing, as long as I'm physically able, mentally and physically able, I'm going to continue to pursue this animal relentlessly until until we can get that football down to the end of the field. I'm, I'm going to continue to do it. If I have to do it all my own, by myself, it doesn't matter. I'm going to continue. Um, and yeah, sometimes I get tired of, of carrying it. Sometimes I, I totally get tired of it. Sometimes I get sick of it. I've got other things in my life. You know, uh, I'm in grad school. I'm active in my church. I've got work. I've got my family. I've got all these other things. But this, to me, is something that is worth pursuing. I think it's a noble pursuit. It's just, and, and I, I, there's no way, you know, I may tell you I'm sick of this. Uh, you know, I want to th- throw in the towel. But deep down inside, that, I don't think that can ever happen. You got to get rid of all those other distractions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, Daryl, I, I think you hit the nail on the head with that uh, because persistence is by far, in my opinion, the most important attribute of any big footer. You have to just push, 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 never give up. You can take a break, man, but you can you can pause, but never move backwards. Always go forward. So, I, I, congratulations, man. Um, I. You, you have the winning attitude, and it is so cool to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for taking a little bit of time and sharing your knowledge uh, with Bobo and I. It is so cool to be able to learn something from someone like yourself who's spent so much time in the field. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much, Daryl. Yeah, that was awesome. I learned some stuff, and hearing your take on their fallibility and uh, being able to sneak up on them and trick them gives a lot of hope to a lot of people because they see they see they seem like superman so often you know because they're just so hard to get up on but you can do it so that's that's always encouraging i'm just humbled to be on your show and uh the honor is all mine the pleasure is all mine gentlemen it's been uh been a great pleasure talking to you and i'm big fans of yours y'all keep doing these shows there a lot of people love the shows and uh just keep doing what you're doing all right thank thank you. you so much All right. You take care, man. Have a good night. Thank you. All right, Bobes. That was great, man. Yeah. Informative and uplifting and inspiring hope and all the squatchers listening out there. Yeah. Yeah. That, that I, I'm so thankful we had him on. I'm, and, and once again, kicking myself in the butt for not having him on earlier. Um, I mean, I, I, I mean, it sounds like an arrogant thing to say, but it, it's so often, um, how often do we get a chance to talk to somebody that we really can learn a lot from as far as the field work goes, you know, cause we, I have my way, you have your way and stuff, but you know, Daryl is out there and the NEWAC is doing such pioneering scientific data driven work that it's hard to kind of, when they say, no, not so much in the morning or usually this or usually that it, you'd be a fool to turn your ear away from that advice oh yeah i mean he's right up there with you know the top guys getting that are locating them consistently and getting evidence it's it's awesome one of the best yeah all right bubs take us home man take us home like a cheap date <laughs> oh here we go okay thanks for listening hit share hit like and I want to welcome all the new listeners. We got a bunch of you. So it's a good thing we didn't have them on sooner, Cliff, because now more people got to hear them. Good point. So on that note, until next week, folks, keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. 
Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond. That's an N in the middle. And tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 